Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. We had a big uh, night in the Staples household the other night. Wednesday night, we were in the semifinal game of our summer beer league. And uh, my wife, who started playing hockey for the first time ever in her mid-40s, is now playing it for a few years. She's a like, immigrant to Canada, so um, didn't grow up with the game. But she made the assist on the winning goal that got mm-hmm. us to the finals. So she's been working really hard to get better at hockey. And it's paying off. She made a great pass. Yeah, she really came through for the team. And it was a great play. Like, and to come, like, you know, you can play hockey a lot and never be involved in a winning goal in a playoff game. Uh, Like, through minor hockey or beer league. Mm -hmm. And so that was pretty, that was pretty great. I'm really proud of her. That was a big moment. So, So how are you Is she a, uh, a goal scorer or mainly a playmaker then? She's more, she's more of a, she's trying, she's, she says her goal, she's got 0.5, she wants to break the 0.5 points per game uh, threshold. Okay. She's scored a few goals and she's got mainly assists, I think. Uh-huh. I'm kind of a defenseman on the team. Right. We both have like oiler spirit animals, like, like players that we model our game on. Mine is kind of Cody Cece and hers is Kari Yamamoto. Okay, so, so you're not Chris Russell then? No, I'm a little bit, I don't block shots. <laughs> I will not block a shot unless it's by mistake. I can assure you of that. Like, if it's a shot, I'm trying to get out of the way. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of like, I try to be the steady defenseman who does not make any mental errors and hangs in there and moves the puck. All right. How are you doing, Bruce? Uh, I'm doing all right. It's been a couple of weeks since we did one of these. Of course, it's, it's downtime mostly for the for the team, but uh, uh, for hockey generally. So, uh uh, we've got um, uh, had some family visiting and getting out walking every day. Weather's been nice, and of course we're pounding away at uh, the cult of hockey. Post a day every day. Indeed, from the three of us. So uh, uh, it's a twelve-month-a-year hockey town. That's, I learned that long since. Yes, the we we the faithful are we're a little less faithful in doing podcasts than we normally are, but it is midsummer, so. I uh, hope people are will be a bit forgiving. We, we're we're back though. We're back, as Ray Lucas said in Crime Story. We're back. We're on top, and you got nothing on us. All right, uh, Bruce. We'll start off going back um, to about ten or eleven days ago when Kyler Yamamoto signed a new contract, two years at three point one million dollars a year. And he signed it, he, he both Pugliarvi and he averted um, arbitration. And um, it's kind of, I don't know if Colin's summer is over, but it did, it did kind of, it may not be, there may be some more moves and we'll get into that. But um, the obvious things are all done, I'm going to suggest, the, like the obvious stuff. And... Um, I uh, I'm glad that he signed for two years. I took it. I don't know if everyone took it this way, but I took his two-year deal. It was essentially the same money as Pulleyarvi got. Pulleyarvi one year at uh, three million, mm-hmm. as as a sign that of com- more commitment to Yamamoto. Both like the two sides coming together closer than it, 
than Puliarvi and the Oilers are. Puliarvi seems to be on a. It seems to be that they actually may go into the season with him, and he's going to be on the team. Suddenly, mm-hmm. that's the talk of Oilers insiders: is yep. that, like the trade stuff is way back in the back burner, and but the the Yamamoto signing, I'm taking that as just there's a bit more commitment to this player, or there's a bit more. Between the two sides, there's more commitment would, would probably be a better way to put it. Nonetheless, it's interesting on, on owners now, uh, Bruce. Mm-hmm. For the first time in, in months, Bob Stoffer has been talking about, yes, Pugliarvi on a in a top six role on a line with Leon Dreisaitl. What do you know? And Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And now that <laughs> I got a cat here in this room, I, I'm going to open the door as soon as I get. Uh, and, uh, and, and Yamamoto on the third line. Which, okay. which analytically, like, this isn't yep. just analytically. Every single stat, advanced stats, normal stats, would seem to indicate that Yesapulayarvi, except in the playoffs at least, was just that much more effective at even strength than Kadri Yamamoto. And there, there's going to be some disagreement on how big that gap was between the two players. Um, I think in the playoffs, Yamamoto was better than Puliyarvi. But in the regular season, just every statistical indicator that there is, and I don't think that's an overstatement, every single one is going to indicate that uh, maybe not goals per 60 at even strength. Maybe there's one that Yamamoto might be ahead of him. But um, every single one, I think, indicates Puliyarvi was a superior player. And and for me, I don't know why he's not in a line with Connor McDavid and... Um, and Evander Kane to start the year, but you know these things will shift around. But I'm just glad he. I'm glad he's back. I'm glad Yamamoto's back. See what happens next. What do you, What do you make of it all? I've got to get rid of this cat. Well, we don't. We don't know who's on. Uh, uh, who is going to start the year with uh, uh, with McDavid and Kane? In fact, we don't even know that McDavid and Kane are going to start the year with each other. Right? This is August, and so oh, there's the cat. <laughs> so it's this is august and uh even uh even a total insider like like bob stoffer has you know this is august right we don't know who's going to start the season with the uh uh with mcdavid uh in october uh, i agree with you and analytically i've been making this case hard for a long time that uh Pugliarvi really posted some exceptional on ice results last year made the McDavid line even better when he was on it, made the drive side line even better when he was on that, made the Nuge line even better when he was on that. And it was a, a constant trend with multiple, you know, high-level line mates that did well, you know, were good players regardless, but did even better with him. And the flip side was that uh, often the, the comparison right winger was Yamamoto, and his stats were a little bit lower in terms of driving play, but also point scoring. And, you know, in the playoffs, I think Yamamoto was a minus five at the end of the playoffs. And I don't have the even strength stuff right in front of me. Uh, I do know Pugliarvi was dead even in the playoffs and people were disappointed in his play. And that was playing on the third line. And, you know, they were just sawing off their part of the game. Uh, whereas Yamamoto was uh, was actually getting outscored in his part of the game. And, and uh, so it wasn't all sweetness and light from him. But his production was maybe a little steadier. Um, but they had, uh, uh, you know, Yamamoto's agent, uh, and his camp, let's call it, uh, played this pretty well. They got 
one-year extension at 1.175 million at the end of the ELC, and now he signed two years for 3.1. Well, that's something like that's almost 7.4 million dollars over three years. You know, from the end of his ELC to just before he becomes a UFA. Uh, whereas Pugliarvi, he got two years at just 1.175, and one year at three. So he only got uh, about $5.4 million over the exact equivalent three years of his career. Yamamoto made $2 million more bucks because he signed the two-year deal at the higher term. Pugliarvi signed his at the lower term. You look at just the cap hits, that kind of disappears until they look a little harder at it. And so uh, when you consider uh, you know, their output and uh, uh, just the way they played, I mean, Yamamoto's always been running one year behind um, uh, Pugliarvi. And when their current contracts expire, that same will hold because Yamamoto runs an extra year. Uh, on the other point of view, though, Pugliarvi only had two years before UFA and Yamamoto had four. Uh, so it always made sense to me that Kyler would sign a two-year extension. And that, that was no surprise. And yes, I mean, that first thought was sign for four or five years <clears> if you can while his, while his boxcars are low. Uh, but I think that possibility went away when his his playoffs were not that satisfactory and also there just wasn't enough cap space to do it. So signing him for one year is an excellent plan B. Hopefully they keep him for the one year and then they can make a good informed decision uh, next spring after the 22-23 season is over as to what and where he goes next. Here's one for you, Bruce. Yep. Um, in terms of these two players, I just want to say I'm a- actually re- thrilled at this point. Mm-hmm. That the Oilers were able to retain, bring in Evander Kane, keep Evander Kane, um, k- get Jack Campbell signed, get a top goalie signed, keep Evander Kane, mm-hmm. uh, keep uh, Brett Kulak, and also keep Pugliarvi and Yamamoto. Like this... If they're able to pull this off, that's a really, really good summer for Ken Holland. Now, they, like they're, you're not bringing in um, new talent except in net, but um, you've you you've done something that I didn't expect was going to happen. That's a great achievement, and, and I want to uh, put a bow on this for in terms of Puliyarvi and Yamamoto. They're sure. both really good hockey players, I think, yeah. and they're both I think they're both what you would call glue players on the top lines. They're not. You know, they're they're not the Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, or the Yari Curry, Wayne Gretzky's on on these lines, but they're the Crucial Niskies, the Willie Lindstrom's, the Mark Napier's. Mm-hmm. Those guys, and and some of those guys were a lot better than others in yes. that role. There's S, you know, there's a big difference between Esatikinen and um, I don't know Matty Hagman, although I like Matty Hagman too. But mm-hmm. let's think, you know, there's a big difference between some of the third wheels and some of the other third yep. wheels on these lines. But so I think they actually have two really strong glue players, players mm-hmm. who do a lot of little things that help these the, the stronger offensive players thrive. And and what proves that is if you look in the McDavid era at the top line combinations um, in that in the McDavid era, Yamamoto in in the top six. Line combinations, Yamamoto and Pugliarvi are, in, are on three each. Three each of the top six line combinations. So the so the very top line combination has been McDavid, Kane, and Pugliarvi last year. And, you know, I don't usually like um, on-ice stats, which are, which are to rate individual players. But when you're looking at, at lines, it starts, this is three players. 
you know, they're they're helped by by D men, but it, I think it's it gets to be a fairly useful stat actually, mm-hmm. and a fair stat when rating lines. The only problem is the sample sizes can be kind of small because yep. uh, the lines don't stay together very much these days. But I, I think it's a useful and fair way to talk about line combinations. So Kane, play RV McDavid, ten goals for one against a, a goals for percentage of ninety one percent. So okay. by far the best combination. Why don't you, so this is why, you know, let's go back to that. Is that such a crazy idea? No. Number two, Bruce, McDavid, mm-hmm. Drysettle, Yamamoto. McDavid, Drysettle, Yamamoto. It's the first time Drysettle appears on this list. 72% goals for. Number three, the Dynamite line, who have played together 664 minutes over three seasons uh, now. Drysettle, Nugent Hopkins, and Yamamoto. 66% goals for percentage. Next up, McDavid, Kane, and Yamamoto. McDavid, Kane, and Yamamoto. Okay. 65% goals for percentage. 65%, which is it's out of this world good. Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite up there with 91%, but really, really good. Yep. And then uh, you have McDavid, Hyman, and Pugliarvi, 61%. And you have McDavid, Drysettle, and Pugliarvi, 60%. Right. So we're seeing a lot of Pugliarvi, a lot of Yamamoto in these really, any line that's getting 60 plus percent goals for percentage is worth keeping, Good is math. worth throwing on the ice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the fact that Pugliarvi's name comes up again and again and again, and Yamamoto's, yeah. they're both top six yeah. wingers is the truth, I think. And well, uh, and I hope they're I see it. They're fifth yeah. and sixth on the, uh, among the forwards, uh, you know, the argument could be made. That you put the two centers and the two left wingers and then the two right wingers if you're ranking the top six the way they were put together for most of last year at least during the Woodcroft part and uh, uh, but your your um, uh, comparison cross era comparison to guys like uh, like Willie Lindstrom and, and Mark Napier uh, I think that's uh, that's pretty spot on you know you want a good third good player on your on your line. You can't afford to pay all of them ten or even five million, but you want them all contributing to the uh, overall performance of the line. And I think they've uh, they've uh, kind of got that. I mean, for now at least, barring whatever happens to sort of resolve this cal- salary cap situation, I think we'll get into that uh, at one point. Uh, but the the way they've got the guys signed now, I think one of Holland's priorities clearly was. Uh, to bring back as much of last year's uh, team as he could after, first of all, determining that he would not be bringing back uh, uh, Mike Smith or Duncan Keith, uh, who each, for different reasons, uh, have uh, uh, seen, seems they've uh, seen their last game. So, But after, after that money became clear, uh, Holland made one more move to clear calf space when he traded Zach Cassian. And then it was, uh, let's get uh, let Kane go to market a little bit early and and uh, uh, check out the market. And he came back and he signed even before free agency even opened. Uh, he signed, he let Kulak go to market the day of UFA and he signed him at the end of the day. And in between times on that day, he got his goalie to replace Mike Smith and the cap space created by the departing Mikko Koskinen. And so, you know, he got a lot done right in that one spot. I, I, just Holland in general, I think he's been very methodical in terms of identifying his priorities and 
and just doing things in the right order. First of all, saying we got to give Smith and Keith time to make their decision, and we can't really do anything until that happens. And then, uh, then uh, came moving uh, Cassian, and then came the draft, and then came the big first day of free agency, and then came signing his first draft pick, and then came resolving Pulgarvi before he went to arbitration, resolving Yamamoto before he went to arbitration. And now he's into the signing of uh, his remaining RFAs, which he got Tyler Benson done. And with uh, Ryan McLeod being sort of the major uh, outstanding item. But I think there's been a logical sequence to what uh, uh, to what Holland has done. And he's, uh, I think methodical is, uh, is a good word for it. And I think I like, and I bet you the agents really like, and I'm pretty sure the players like that. He he involves them a little bit in the process. Like he waited for for Smith and Keith. He uh, he gave um, Kane that chance to go to market. Uh, he he put an offer out for Kulak and said, "You go and check it out and come back to me at the end of the day." And that um, uh, there's. There's a level of respect that Colin treats his players with. And I commented on this before when he brought in a bunch of players and he gave them all a real solid chance to make the NHL. Yes. Yeah. That uh, uh, I suspect that he's uh, fairly highly regarded in the, uh, especially in the agent community, as, as, uh, as given, his, uh, given the players a pretty fair crack at it. So uh, uh, in that respect, uh, you know, hats off to Ken Holland. I think he's doing uh, he's doing a lot of things right. I agree. You know, one of the interesting things, um, Kane, that whole thing mm. with the San Jose, San Jose um, hearing, that was supposed yeah, to happen. What's going on? Yeah. What is going? Anyway, we don't know what's going on, but uh, I, I I I think there's like zero chance there's any kind of blowback on the orders here. Kane, Kane signed here. He's going to be here, and I just think it's a, it's it's a, they're trying to figure out, can they settle this with San Jose just paying them some money? Or are they going to have to have the arbitrator make San Jose pay him some money? I think San Jose is going to be on the hook. I don't think they have a strong case for axing his contract um, from from what I've seen. So, and I, I don't know everything about that, but I just think it's it's just a negotiation. So that maybe both sides are pushing it down the road and seeing if they can resolve it before they, they hear, go to the arbitrator. But uh, I that's wish, my, I that's wish my they would. I have a nightmare scenario in which San Jose loses the arbitration, gets saddled with Kane's contract, and winds that up trading happen. it trading it to Edmonton for assets, or and where the Oilers wind up with a higher cap hit. Now I would have to think the Oilers would insist on San Jose retaining something, and I would think that would only be fair. San Jose screwed around and found out, as the saying sort of goes, that they would be forced to eat at least some of his salary, but. Uh, I wish they just resolved the damn thing. There's, I mean, it's been months. San Jose cannot win. That is that. I don't. I don't actually think that can happen. I, don't, I think there's zero percent chance of that happening, because Kane at this point, it, he, he's going into arbitration. He's not asking for that contract to be reinstated. That's not what he wants. San Jose's already axed that contract. Okay, they have to argue. We were right to ax that contract. That's their whole argument. They already did it. They've got to defend it. Kane isn't going to go there saying, well, I want that contract back in place. He's got a contract. His, his, he might have made that argument before when he had no new contract, when, he, when, there, when there was no you know, economic prospect for him making money. Now he goes to arbitration and he says, I have a contract. I've done everything I can to make money, even though they, 
efforts acts by contract. I just want them to make good on what they owe me. That's the that's what arbitration is about. It's not about anything else. And it, that was raised, but I think it was always raised by people who didn't understand the process, where it was at at that moment. The second Kane, the second it becomes obvious Kane's going to get a new and lucrative contract, he ain't asking for that old contract reinstated. That's the position when you're cast loose by the San Jose Sharks and you might not get a good contract. Right. Kane's not asking for that. That doesn't happen in this in arbitration. Anyway, I, I also, just in terms of the line combinations, Bruce, if you have Pulley and Yamamoto in the top six, that means Nugent Hopkins, your third line center, which I'm, I'm good with that. It's a, it's, it's one of the core, core 12 uh, positions as we've talked yes, about absolutely. third line center. You got to have a good player. I like Ryan McLeod, Ryan McLeod's even strength scoring numbers are not strong. He, he and he, and like he's, he, he's flashy right now. But he's not that effective as point scorer or like I think he's a good player. I wouldn't mm-hmm. mind seeing Ryan McLeod on the wing on the third line. Like and if Derek Ryan's fourth line center or if they go with uh, 11 and seven. So I don't mind McLeod on the wing. I And I and I kind of like Nugent third line center at this point, given his if his lack of scoring at even strength in top yes. line situations is a bit of a concern. And mm-hmm. he's I think he's improved a lot defensively. I think he's quite a strong defensive player uh, from what I saw from him at center. So that that works for me. You know who else likes uh, Nuge as a third-line center? Kelly Rudy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, – Kelly Rudy was caught in the crossfire in this town about five or more years ago in a Hockey Night in Canada game when he was saying that he oh, thought uh, Nuge would be a good 3C. And then outraged us. <laughs> Uh, I think they were playing and probably losing to Calgary at the time on a Saturday night game, and uh, tempers were already a little short. And then, uh, and then uh, Rudy came out with this blasphemy about uh, RNH. <laughs> well, maybe, but you yeah, know I, what? When your I, first two centers are Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, having a terrific third line center is not a bad spot to have either. And I think as three C's go, I think, you know, Nuge is an expensive one, but I, I think uh, uh, well-qualified. And, of course, he is a, 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 an ace on both special teams, which really, really helps. That helps Ryan McLeod's game as well. So uh, the Oilers are very rich at the center position right now. And uh, I have yet to catch up on the actual reading of these articles, but Travis Yost of TSN, I'm almost positive, ranked Oilers number one at the center position in the NHL. So Yeah, that, there's a different context, of, of course, to Harudi's comments then. Back then, I think a lot of us were afraid Nugent Hopkins was going to get uh, traded away from the Oilers without ever having a, had a chance, Bruce, um, to play wing. And we all wanted to see him on the wing because he hadn't had tremendous success as a first or second line center. I think it's like he was, he was good, but then you get McDavid and Dreisaitl and... You know, he seemed to be struggling a bit now and then. And anyway, that was the context. Um, here's the quote from Herdy at the time. Uh, I know I've, a quote, I know I've got years and years and years of Connor McDavid and Ryan Nugent Hopkins as my top two centers. I'm feeling pretty good, analyst Elliot Friedman said on Saturday night's broadcast. Then Herdy jumped in. Now, is there a player in the National Hockey League at that age that took bigger strides than Ryan Nugent Hopkins last year? Look, he went from being a really, really good to being a really excellent centerman. Hmm. I'm a little bit confused. 
by. I guess he changed his opinion a couple days later, and I was reporting on that. Mm-hmm. But you, yeah, well, he, 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 he got under fire more than he realized for saying it. But uh, you know, I'm just looking up Yost's article now, and there's three teams that he calls a tier one on the center depth charts: Oilers, uh, Panthers, and Maple Leafs. And for the Oilers, he doesn't even list Nuge as a center. He's got McDavid, Drysaddle, McLeod, and Ryan. And so if you put Nuge in the 3C, I think that separates even Edmonton from these other two teams, uh, Florida and Toronto, who, you know, have kind of a uh, lesser known, uh, you know, lesser proven guys or 4C in each case. But uh, anyway, it's uh, um, it's a nice place to be. If yeah, you so you in the elite of the league at the center position. That's uh, that's uh, strength up the middle is uh, is vital. March 2015, you reported on Hurdy saying that a scathing critique of Ryan Nugent Hopkins calling him a second or third line center. Mm-hmm. And then then what I was just reading previously was I might have been a, mad too, a, David. A few <laughs> you were mad at that, Bruce. It looks like, and um, a, a few days later, Hurdy changed his tune and said he had, was very much improved. So that's, uh-huh. that was the context of the quote. This that was I, pre-McDavid and it was during, what, what was it, February 2015? This is April. April? Oh, the first one was, okay, the first, the quote where he made the second or third line center mm-hmm. was March 2015. Right. So it was and then when he revised. And Leon was in junior at that point. Nuge what? was the number one center. Uh, and then when he revised opinion, it was mm-hmm. October 2015. That, like So the quote okay. that I read about Crudy saying, vast improvement from Nugent Hopkins. Looks like he went from being really good to being a really excellent centerman. That comes a uh, half year later, um, after McDavid's been drafted, I guess, and he's on the team. Anyway. Right. Uh, Bruce, there's one other thing that sticks mm-hmm. out with the in the Yamamoto moment, and um, it was uh, this is a segue into our next little segment here. Jim Matheson on Twitter said, "Very fair contract for Yamamoto, but absolutely Oilers have to trade somebody to get under the ceiling with McLeod likely to get one million to one point five million a new, new deal to come." So Jim was saying that, and I heartily agreed. I I, I have been fully I was fully expecting. The orders had to move someone out, oh, and yeah. um, and it's still uh, obviously this is a possibility. But in the in the um, days since then, Holland's been on the radio uh, with Low Tide and with other people, and he's raised the possibility of a 21 or 20 man roster. And all of a sudden, the idea of a 20 man roster is very real for all of us. So the orders, in order to have a lower cap, will go with a 20 man roster. And I'll tell you what. Bruce, I really uh, prefer that to having to trade away a good hockey player. You know, if you, we've talked about how if you trade away Warren Fogle, two point yeah. seven five million for two years, you're going to have to trade a draft pick with him. That's yeah. not very appetizing because he's a decent decent hockey player, and then to trade another draft pick. So if the Oilers can find a way of going with twenty players, and it just made me suddenly think, maybe twenty player rosters are going to become the norm in the NHL. That in order to maximize the salaries for really good players for the better players they're going to all go to 20-man rosters and if that means every now and then you're going to have to go with um, a player short for a game because you can't call someone up fast enough you're going to do that and I think with the Oilers you always want to have 6D probably 
But, um, you know, if they're a forward short now and then, the orders have shown, demonstrated they can, it's not a problem for them to play with 11, mm -hmm. with 11 forwards rather than 12. So I think that's, that's suddenly sounding like a really, really good idea. What do you think? Well, it'd be nice if you could get away with it. But, I mean, usually when you hear a team squeezing down their opening day roster, it's to fit um, an injured player's salary on their team. Then they put that guy on LTIR, and now they've got calf space to call up the replacements. If you're going with a, uh, I mean, if they're declaring a 20-man roster to open the season, and they can squeeze Mike Smith in there, then put him in LTIR, that really kind of sets them up for later in the season. With the current contracts they have, I don't think they can do that. And so if you're starting the season with a 20-man roster, well, what do you do when a guy gets hurt in game one or two? Like, well, you call someone you, up. You put him on injured reserve. You have to pay him, and you have to pay the guy on, uh, unless you put him on long-term injured reserve, which you can do if he's going to be out for 24 days or 10 games. Well, a lot of injuries are nothing close to that. But you got to have a little bit of, you know, got to have extra bodies on uh, available. And even to put a guy on short-term injured reserve, that's a week. Uh, and you still have to pay a salary. It's only the LTIR guys where you get the salary relief. So I just don't see it as being a feasible uh, cap management strategy on an ongoing basis. Like I say, if it's if it's to squeeze Mike Smith in and then you pop him on LTIR and now you got room to call up two guys from the minors and a little bit of breathing room. So I thought that's a great strategy. But uh, as I say, I think with the contracts they have right now, you know, if you're keeping Fogel and Barry and Bully Arby and Yamamoto and all the five and ten million dollar guys, then uh, it's, you know who, uh, it's very, 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 very tight. You know who would like it? The strategy is the players because they all get more ice time. If if they're going with, let's say they have to go with 11D and or 5D mm -hmm. and 11 forwards, the players mm -hmm. are going to like that because they all want more ice time. But I agree. Like, you know, the point you're making is 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 very well made. What happens when you get injuries? Guys banged up. This happens all the time. They got to... Their game, you know, they they got to, can they play tonight? And you don't want to force someone to play. Like if someone's sitting there and you're thinking, oh, geez, he, you know, that shouldn't be part of the decision that he feels he must play because otherwise you got to go with 5D. Yeah. Um, that would be a problem. So, but maybe 21-man roster is possible over, over a longer term. Because then you, you just, you put the guy on, the, is it two weeks for the for the long term? They go on long. Uh, they have it's, to ten, it's ten games or twenty-four days, so it's pretty significant. Ooh. Three and a half. Oh, okay, all right. So that's Minimum pretty long. Games, so yeah. yeah. So that doesn't. That's not going. So with the nature of the NHL, with players getting banged up, I could see twenty-one mm -hmm. man roster, but you'd have to have pretty good health on the team to make that work. So uh, maybe that's or, a bit or else you you hope. Uh, and I put this in quotation marks, but from a cap perspective, that if someone does get hurt, uh, uh, it's one of your one of the players that actually has some cap that frees up space. You know, like if Warren Fogle gets hurt, that's a uh, that's a different equation from if a you know eight hundred thousand dollar guy gets hurt, because uh, you if, if at least if LTIR is involved. So, uh, and I like I say I use the word hope and quotation marks but the, your problem your salary cap problem can be solved depending on who it is who gets hurt 
Who's like Max Pacioretty? He just got hurt. He just ripped up his Achilles tendon. He's out for six months in oof. Carolina. That just picked him up. Uh, but Carolina gets to bury him on LTIR all year and bring him back just before the playoff. And now they got six million dollars in cap space. So for them, they are almost weaponizing, able to weaponize that. They've got their own sort of built-in Kucherov on their on their team. So, so it's 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 a complex equation. If we're all those arm, armchair um, GMs and coaches that are out there aplenty, uh, some of us are armchair capologists. <laughs> I am not. That's where I, the money is. <laughs> I try to stay. I try to stay away from every discussion now about cap waivers, all that. Like it's just, I yeah. always get some. There's always some oh, confounding yeah, factor so that I never wrinkles. think about. There, there really are. So there's like, a, there, like there's some people that are really good at this. Like there's Ira Cooper, and mm-hmm. you know there's the um, cap friendly guys, and so there's and they always like anytime we talk about this, we always for seemingly Bruce and I, I, I think it's a fair comment. We we tend to forget some factor, like I just did with the injuries, um, that that's pretty obvious and is a it's a big confounding factor and and it's going to screw up. Another confounding factor if you go with twenty man is you know you can. They can waive Nimalainen and, and Deharnay, but if they waive Dmitry Samarukov, he's eligible to be grabbed by another team, and he's a pretty good prospect. So do you want that to happen? So maybe you go, maybe he stays. I don't know. But I could see teams pushing hard on that, stretching mm-hmm. that, and thinking maybe maybe you can play uh, hockey games in the NHL for for some for a, a period of time with eleven forwards and five D. You know that maybe that's not the end of the world. It's not optimal doesn't give the coach all the choices but if it's between that and trading away a good player uh or a poison pill deal um maybe we're going to go with that and see try that for a month or two see if it works and we will you know maybe it'll be warren fogel's turn to get injured one week like i'm not sure how 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 um how the nhl polices that long-term injury like if someone's out for three weeks, are they checking or, you know, do they look at the medical reports of a, of a player? Um, could, could there, could you what have if to... someone's out for the entire season and then shows up at 120% for game one of the playoffs, like uh, Kucherov did anybody police that? Why no? Nice, apparently nice not. holiday. Yeah. All right. Anyway. So anyway, <laughs> It looked like they, for sure, they were going to have to trade someone. Maybe they still do. Maybe that's, mm-hmm. maybe that's still in the offing. And I, and I think, what we're waiting to see happen, probably Ken Holland is waiting to see happen, is yes. they need the, all the other teams to sign other players, start to deal with, like, as teams, like, for instance, Montreal has Carey Price. So mm-hmm. if, if Carey Price is, isn't is going to play all of a sudden, Montreal has all this cap space, and maybe then you can trade Warren Fogel to Montreal, right? Maybe that makes sense for the Montreal Canadiens, mm-hmm. right? Right now, so there's about, I think there's about eight teams. When I looked at the list, there's about eight teams that are well under the cap, and look like they could take on a significant contract or two. And they're the target teams for the order. So there are a number of teams. And it's not like the, the, the players, you know, like like a Warren Fogel, he's not a terrible hockey player. No, he's just, it. he's not, he's not terribly overpaid. He's overpaid by maybe a million dollars um, or half a million dollars. It's not a, it's not a gross overpayment. Right. So maybe the owners can find a, a way to solve it that way as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the good news here is that we're not talk, talking about contracts of players that, you know, you just wish were were, uh, were gone. I mean, last year at this time, we had the contract with Kyle Turris that we were pretty sure he wasn't going to cover the bet in 21-22. And in fact, he did not cover that bet. 
and it was like $1.65 million. So he cost 900,000 more than a replacement player at NHL minimum would have cost. Well, in the case of Warren Fogle, 2.75 million, not a core 12 player, uh, his uh, margin is 2 million bucks. You know, if you were to say replace Warren Fogle with um, Tyler Benson or, you know, or, uh, Devin Shore or uh, Dylan Holloway, even all those guys are under $1 million. So you're saving 2 million or, or you know, 90% of 2 million bucks. Whereas if you decide, no, I don't want Matthias Janmark on this team or Derek Ryan, and you replace them with a $750,000 player, well, you're saving 500000 against the cap, but that's all. Whereas $2 million in one chunk, that would solve a lot of problems. So that's why Fogel is getting, you know, the attention, the scrutiny that he's getting. It's not that he's a bad player. He's, uh, he was, you know, a decent bottom six player that the Oilers have been crying out for for years. So it, in one way, it hurts to be talking about having to, having to uh, reconsider. But it's all that darn salary cap and just somehow getting your entire team underneath it. So Pulley signed a new contract and yes. there was some consternation still in Edmonton because he didn't give an interview in Edmonton about signing his new deal. And I think we, there's been mixed reports about what he wants and mixed reports about what it's clear that the Oilers were kind of on the fence with the player, but it wasn't clear whether Ken Holland was on the fence with the player because Pulley was kind of on the fence or what was going on. It's there's, I think there's, I think it's fair to say and, and people will say with certainty, oh, Pugliarvi wanted to trade or Pugliarvi wanted to stay. No one can be certain based on anything that's been said. I think it's a, it's an unknown exactly what the Oilers' attitude was towards the player and exactly what Pugliarvi's attitude was towards the Oilers. Other than it's, it seems fuzzy. We just, I just think it's, we don't know. And we can't, we we can't know. But Pugliarvi did get a, an interview. And what we know is his attitude, what he's saying now. So whatever he thought or what the orders thought in the past, we know this is what he is saying now. And I'll, I'll quote from that article. And he said, Pugliarvi, quote, and this is a translation from uh, Marie Lonborg. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it Lonberry? Lonberry. Lon- I was going to ask her. I was thinking all this time, like uh, we follow each other on Twitter. All this time we've had the answer right in front of us. We should ask Mary, is it Lonberg or is it Lonberry? Yeah, so I may have to do that. And if you're listening, Mary, and I know you like our podcast as well, thank you. Uh, first, thanks for your reliable translation of Finnish into English without the uh, Google Translate version, which puts it into Martian. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, that, we would really dearly love some clarity on that because we sure do get blowback for uh, trying to pronounce Philip Brobery's name properly. <laughs> So uh, Marie Lonberry said, <laughs> and I'll go with that for now. Uh, she 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 did the translation, and again, mm-hmm. I, I I agree with you. Fantastic, because Google's all over the place. Quote: The plan from this is Pulley The plan is to enter the season with a full hard attitude, aiming for a better role, and the plan is to give everything to the team. I want to play in a big role. This mm-hmm. is the goal, and that's why I've practiced well all summer. Of course, I want to be a good player in a good team. And as for trade rumors, he was asked, and he said, quote, something always comes up somewhere, but I don't follow them all. I don't follow them at all, quote, unquote. Uh, so um, it sounds like he's keen heading into the year right now. 
and I'm taking that at face value that that's actually what he thinks. Um, you know, players don't always say exactly what they think, of, of course, because they're, you know, who does about, you know, if you were in, interviewed about your employer, would you always be completely honest in public? I don't think so. I think it, that would be foolish. And I don't think NHL players are. But it, this this struck me as a pretty fulsome comment of, of optimism about the coming year. So I, I was encouraged by that. How did you take it? Uh, I took it as full speed ahead. He wants to be a good player in a good team. He knows he's already on a, in a good team, as he put it. And uh, he is a good player. And the more the more the merrier good players and in, in good teams, they make good teams. And uh, as you suggested, but you know, why his play at least he's something of a of a of a glue player. And just. To, touch briefly on our original topic. I, I, for one, am very happy that, at least for now, the two 24-year-old right-wingers, uh, the Oilers haven't chosen to part company with either of them. They're, they're both still around. And I've had many issues in the past with the Oilers giving up on good young players uh, too early and for not enough return. And so I, sometimes they take a while before they develop into the full player they're going to be and I think both guys are on track to continue to improve it was a hallmark of the decade of darkness you know yes. names pop in my head like Jeff Petrie Kyle Brodziak Andrew Cogliano I'm sure there's others uh there many others pull, pull, Green, Jared Stowe. oh yeah yeah you know, there there's just uh and some of them they got returned on like those last two guys they got uh, Lubo Wisnowski everybody including I loved as a player but they, it was just a case of they they kind of bit off their nose despite their face. Like they, they, they've had this sort of ongoing lack of 25-year-old mid-roster players. You know, if you don't have a 40-goal season under your belt by the time you're 24, it's time to move on. It seems to be the, have been the attitude. And that seems now to be changing. And I'm all for that. Pugliarvi was asked about uh, the media attention on him, and he said, quote, there has been writings about me for many years now. Sometimes <laughs> it has gone better and sometimes worse. This whole time, I have grown as a person and done my own thing. That, that is playing hockey and focusing on everyday life. I try to get the best out of me and at the same time enjoy the work. Yes, there will always be journalists and fans who write about things. I just try to take care of myself. So this is, uh, unquote, this is a very good attitude for I any think. hockey player. Just ignore, just ignore anything. Uh, we say, we write, anyone says, anyone writes. Just focus on um, your team, your teammates, your coach, and yourself. Um, so, Bruce, the any final thoughts on Pugliarvi Yamamoto before we move on to the next topic? Uh, Tyler yeah, Benson. Still orders. Tyler mm. Benson signed a new deal. What do you? What mm -hmm. did you think? Make of it? And um, it made 100% sense. He signed actually for less than his qualifying offer, which was a 5% raise on last year's salary, which was NHL minimum. Uh, but he actually signed again for the NHL minimum, 750,000, and uh, he got a decent minor league component. Uh, and he will. Uh, it works to his advantage, and this is the way that one of one of the odd wrinkles of the salary cap era is that for the marginal, especially the marginal young players, uh, to take less money increases their chances of playing in the NHL. 
because it does increase their the margin of savings that they bring when they're used in a replacement role. Remember Chirelli doing this with guys like Brandon Davison, and I was looking at kind of, why would you sign for less than the qualifying offer? And then during the season, when there's just a little bit of cap space and they're able to call the guy up because he's able to fit in there, uh, that makes a difference. And if you're Tyler Benson and you're saying, you know, I haven't accomplished as much as Warren Fogel yet, but if you use me instead of him, it's a two million dollar difference, two whole million dollars. You know that that's a that's a that part of the equation is definitely in his favor. So the minimum is 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 um, not a bad place for those tweener guys to be, and if they make it, you know they will get paid in due course. So it was a, I thought a good contract for him. He got a decent AHL component with a guarantee of a little bit more than that. So if he spends no time in the NHL, he will he will receive you know a pretty decent salary in the AHL, and he'll be a real good AHLer of that. You know he's long since established that, and if he winds up being you know another Seth Griffith, and he helps with uh, the AHL team being decent and competitive, and and acts as a mentor for uh, younger players, then that's how he helps. And it comes costs nothing off the salary cap. And if he is in the NHL, he costs the bare minimum of the salary cap. So from the team's perspective, it's a no-lose. I think it also, let's say the others the were to trade Fogel, and then they're, let's say they're looking to replace him in the, in the lineup. Mm-hmm. It could come down to like Tyler Benson versus Dylan Holloway. Mm-hmm. And I think it puts him in a slightly better position mm-hmm. Than, than even less. Holloway making the team. So, um, or Devin Shore, there's a hundred thousand dollars difference there, which you know, on a given day, it could be the difference. Yeah, because so, they're in LTIR status, as they will be this year with Cliff Bomb and Smith. Every single day, they have to be under the established maximum figure. There's no give and take, and you put some in and you take it out later. None of that, they have to be, they have to be compliant. All 186 days of the regular season. Tyler Benson's rookie year, I'm going to suggest, was interesting in that skill-wise, mm-hmm. he struggled. Um, he, I think he was a solid enough defensive player. Offensively, he wasn't able to get his game going. Now he was not playing with the you know great offensive hockey players. Nope. This is this is this is tough. Nonetheless. He just he was pretty underwhelming on the attack, yeah. but um, he showed he showed a real he, I think he showed real smarts in his game. He was a solid defensive player and he was physical. He would go out there and hit, and he, more than he's ever hit before I think. But he's figuring out okay, I'm going to do what it takes to make the NHL, and I'm going to play physical hockey and be an agitator, getting people's faces. Very yeah. smart by Tyler Benson if that's what it's going to take. He, he's demonstrating it and um, it, it gives him the owners. You can always use these agitating, aggressive, chippy players uh, who yep. will hit on your fourth line. And if he can be that player, maybe he'll make the NHL. We'll see. Yeah, no, he was, uh, that was one thing I didn't expect from him was the, was the amount of edge. And I, I think that was sort of a deliberate sort of career strategy for him. That said, you know, I need every edge I can, I can take or make. And, uh, and I haven't seen enough of him as a regular player to know if that's sort of been always part of his makeup. Uh, but last year, it really did stand out, this getting a guy's face with a sneer or a smirk or a last little shot and cost him maybe a penalty or two along the way. 
and he drew a penalty or two along the way. And uh, but he always seemed to play with a little bit of edge. The trouble was, even when he was playing, he was playing at most two games out of three. He was playing eight minutes a night, and he was playing on a line with Colton Seager. You know, and what are you going to do? Uh, probably not score many points. Uh, and so I I think he showed some things, but unfortunately he didn't show enough to really get a shot on a skill line. And that's, uh, it's a catch 22. And that's likely the, the way that uh, uh, his skills would be maximized. He's making those cute, clever little passes to guys that can, that can do stuff with them. But, uh, you know, you need to have a, you need to have a, uh, uh, NHL class 200 foot game and he's not there yet and whether he'll ever get there I mean obviously people are starting to have their doubts I was surprised actually that he came back I thought he might go to Europe or maybe would sign with another NHL team I thought maybe it kind of come to an end like this you know this journey he's been on trying to make the Oilers but because he's he's on the William Loggison the William Loggison route mm-hmm. of playing you know long time prospect We'll see yes. if he's a player, but he's it's another year, and I'm not against it. It's it's I think it was a good move. They qualified him, and they didn't qualify Brendan Perlini, who was a guy that he was competing with for a spot for a long time. And once they made the qualifying offer, I mean, Edmonton was the team. He signs yeah. with Edmonton, or he moves on, and he signed with Edmonton. And hopefully, he's spending all summer working his butt off with the skating coaches. What I'm kind of hoping, but I have no idea. I think that was the right choice in terms of Perlini. I, I didn't That's see. He just didn't fit. That's the right choice, I thought. Yeah. I wouldn't have been. If they had parted ways with Benson, I wouldn't have said a word against it. And, it, you know, it, it he's he's just on the edge of, mm-hmm. of of things. And you could probably get another player who wouldn't be that dissimilar to Tyler Benson at this point. So, old uh, internal role players. That's The objective is that eventually they work their way into the even the fourth or third line where they can help the team. I do like the patience. Yes. It's, a, it's, it's the hallmark of Ken Hall and his patience. Yes. And here he showed it again. I think he showed it through the summer and he showed it in that move. He showed it with Evander Kane. He just showed it and showed it and showed it and showing it right now in terms of what to do next. So he's showing Hall, patience with Ryan McLeod, which uh, is, you know, the one unsigned contract. Now, I think he's probably waiting Till he knows how much margin he's got to deal with. Once the dust settles on all these other things, are they really going to have to battle McLeod for every dollar on a one-year contract uh, to fit him under the cap? Uh, like he did Yamamoto last year. They didn't sign Yamamoto last year until September 18th, basically the eve of training camp. And uh, uh, he was in the same boat. His CLC was over. He had no, no Arbrights. He had no... Uh, real negotiating power, and now McLeod's in that same boat. And you have to think that Holland would like to say, geez, I sure wish I had 1.5 or 1.75 that I can offer him and get him for two years. But if need be, we can say 1 million for one year, that's all we got, to, you know. And it doesn't player doesn't have a whole lot of choice, barring the highly unlikely chance that someone comes in and offers sheets. And I mean, the... the, the ball is in the manager's uh, court and I mean basically he di- probably dictated the terms to Benson as well and Benson was just signed because he really did have no choice and uh, whereas McLeod is you know they may be able to negotiate a you know 50 or 100,000 here or there but I think 
the bigger question is, is it one year cheap or is it two years fairly cheap? And what can we do? And if they wind up trading Tyson Berry as opposed to Warren Fogel, that maybe changes the balance of how much room they got to uh, maneuver with. So the idea of trading Tyson Berry, I, I think that it's less likely now with Duncan Keith gone. I think they want to keep this veteran defenseman around. So yes. I, and, and so his value to the Oilers has gone up, whereas his value around the NHL has gone down as the summer has gone along because teams were able to fill their needs uh, at right shot power play defenseman. There was lots of options this year and teams have picked up those players who needed that kind of player. So he's got less value to other NHL teams. I just don't see Tyson Berry being moved at this point. I I, uh, I know some people would like the orders to solve their cap problem that way. I don't think it's the best way to do it. And I actually don't think it's that realistic anymore. Um, that said, if they were able to move Barry, there is an option. You know, there's this talk of veteran players, as Bob Stoffer has put it, veteran players who've made more than $50 million in the NHL career who are seriously considering the, considering the Oilers. And I'm assuming they're talking about like one-year contracts at about a million dollars each for these veteran kind of players. And two names have come up repeatedly, P.K. Subban and Phil Castle, not Phil Housley, as I said on Oilers Now a couple times. <laughs> Phil Castle um, is the... Uh, is the other guy look in looking at the two players, Bruce um, mm -hmm. Kessel makes some sense to me like, and obviously would have to find cap room, but Kessel makes mm -hmm. more sense because Subban with, with Tyson Berry and Edmonton, I just don't see Subban signing as a seventh D man. Um, you know, he, I don't see him wanting that role, but I think that's what his role would be unless they went with four right shot defensemen. Uh, and I don't think oh, they're going to do that. No, I think they want to play Philip Broberry. They want to see what they have there, and I think they need to do that. Or oh. Dmitry Samarukov or some young player. He's it's, a seventh. Yeah, they need to bring in. They need to give these young guys a chance, break some mm -hmm. young guys in. So Subban doesn't make sense to me. But he, he had nearly a point a game, or excuse me, a point uh, per 60 minutes of even mm -hmm. strength time. His even strength scoring last year in New Jersey was very similar to the level that we saw from Kulak, Barry, Duncan Keith, and Darnell Nurse. They weren't that far off PK Subban's per 60 even strength total. So he can still, looks like he can still move the puck. Um, you know, if they were to trade Barry, which I think again is unlikely, Subban is in it. That's an interesting thought yes. as a replacement player. But otherwise, I don't see him fitting. As for Kessel, um, he scored at a very high rate at even strength, or at, at a solid rate, I should say. At a top six rate, he was uh, two points per 60 at even strength. And he did that despite the fact that he only shot about 5% on his own uh, sh shots on net. He's a, an 11% um, career shooter. So Kessel um, didn't score much last year, but poor puck luck probably came into play there. And he's he, he looks like he's still got something to give on the attack. Uh, he, he's a top six attacker. And so if you can bring him in uh, on a million-dollar contract, I think that's a really good that's a good play for the orders to to do. And I'd like to see that happen, but I don't see the, I don't, you know, there's lots of teams now, suddenly money's coming open for Vegas uh, with Robin Leonard's injury. It's right. probably coming open for Vegas. As you mentioned, just in um, Carolina, right? Money's open now for Carolina. I could see Kessel getting more money in another, in another city suddenly. And he'd have to really want to come and play with McDavid and Drysaddle to take a, million dollar contract at Edmonton it's possible he'll do that um 
I don't know if we'll see it or not, though. What's your take on them? Yeah. <clears throat> part part of me, I mean, Phil Kessel, obviously, he comes with a, a, a significant depth of uh, bona fides and credentials. I mean, he's got 399 career goals, despite the poor season he just had in Arizona, where his shooting percentage fell off the charts. Uh, but part of me worries, well, is that just a sort of canary in the coal mine that he's losing the, you know, the skills that he had? Do we want to get him at the, you know, the Kyle Turris phase of his career and be paying any kind of a premium for that? Uh, you know, he was clearly uh, in Arizona uh, by usage. Uh, he was basically the second uh, uh, behind Clayton Keller. Uh, on on the wing there on on right wing as listed here anyway, and uh, but Arizona is a pretty poor team on Edmonton. Uh, I'm not sure that he fits necessarily in the top six the way it is unless he's saying we're going to bring him in to replace one of the two younger guys, uh, and that's the same question you're asking about PK Subban. If you're bringing him in to replace. Tyson Berry. If you're going to trade Tyson Berry, then you need to replace him, and then PK Subban becomes a reasonable option to sign him as a seventh D when they've already got three right shot D that are pretty established in CC, Bouchard, and Berry that were in one, two, three in games played by Oilers defensemen last year. You know, there's not a lot of room there for another right shot D. So uh, I would think that um, the possibility of bringing in Subban would be predicated on, you know, them opening up that spot. And they might even do the two things together. Subban, after years of being a number one or a top four defenseman, playing a ton of elite minutes, last year was definitively uh, changed to a third-pairing guy. He played with Ty Smith. Uh, he played uh, 27% of his minutes against elite opponents, whereas in the past he's been close to 40%. Uh, most years, uh, and he was, you know, behind Dougie Hamilton and Damon Searson on the Jersey death chart at right defenseman, and he was the third guy. And so, at this point, you'd like to think, well, they'll get him at a, if they do get him, they'll get him at a third pairing price tag, and any other, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of negotiating power for, you know, any kind of big bucks. And Honestly, he doesn't have a huge amount of need of big bucks. I mean, he got paid $9 million a year for seven or eight years there on his last uh, huge contract that he signed in Montreal. Went to Nashville, went to Jersey, all in that one contract. And so he, he's an interesting option. There are people out there that have really liked PK for a long, long, long time. I mean, there's all that talk, remember, in 2016 about the fourth overall draft pick that became Paul Yarby, plus Dry Saddle, plus Mercer Clapp. They were going to, people wanted, yeah, as people, Bruce, they wanted to imagine? see I mean, Leon Dry Saddle traded for PK Zuban. Plus. If that, if that had happened, plus, plus Darnell <laughs> Nurse, and the, if that had happened, it would have destroyed the Oilers franchise, like in a, oh. such a significant way. Anyway, it didn't happen, but yeah, there was. People and I, I liked PK then, and I still have time for PK. But I just didn't see him as worth that price, and I'm I'm ever glad that the Oilers didn't see fit to play, to pay it. But um, uh, well, we always some of those people that liked him then like him now. Let's put it that way. And okay. some of, some of those are people whose opinions I respect. So 
I mean, maybe he would fit in that specific situation, but like I say, I only see it working if it's, okay, we got to move Barry to make cap space. Who can we replace him with that might do some of the same stuff Barry did for way cheaper? And maybe that uh, that's one of the guys. I mean, there's there's a few sort of veteran right shot demon kicking around, and he's one of them. You and I, we do not get everything right, Bruce. No, Man, sure we get it. Man, <laughs> we we did get it right with Leon Dreisaitl. Right from the start, both of us were very bullish on the player, mm-hmm. and we we maintained that. There was lots of people trading. You know, let's tra- and it seemed like you know from people who place a lot of faith in on ice stats to do their analysis. That's where these suggestions would come from in terms of moving out Dreisaitl. And I just, you know, our the way we rank the players, he always showed up well. If you just zero we did on his individual play, on his contributions to scoring chances. Even as a rookie, he did well by that, by the way we... Him and Yakupov, at, yeah, they it. did everything but put the puck in the net. I don't know if Yakupov was always a top winger. No, no, more. but when they were together in 2014-15... Yeah, they played the first half of the season mostly together on the third line, and their Corsi and all the underlying numbers were really good, like fifty-four percent, or you know, in that range, like well over fifty percent. And they got smoked in goals. They did, you know, they they did everything but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 couldn't score. He found no, on so many shots. Neither of them could that year. Leon had two yeah. goals as a, as a, as a rookie. Go figure. All right, so we're on to our prospect series, Bruce. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, uh, this is what we'll be writing about for the, generally speaking, for the rest of the uh, summer. And um, you started it off with looking at kind of the players at the lower end of the prospect roster. And uh, so did any of the, any of those guys stand out as, as possible NHLers? Like, or which ones stand out the most as possible right. NHLers? Okay, well, this year we're down to... Uh... What we've identified as 31, 31 prospects uh, based on uh, guys under contract who've played fewer than 25 NHL games or guys not under contract but who are on the club's reserve list because they've drafted them in the past and they're, you know, bubbling under in the system as the old page on the medium guide used to have it. And uh, uh, most of the guys are down to 31, I think, in large part because every year the Oilers are down one, two, even three draft picks at the draft. So they're just getting lesser influx of of new talent into the system five years in a row. They haven't, since they had as many as seven draft choices, that's sort of your natural number that you should have in a draft. They're, they're usually short from that. And that's starting to... to, to um, uh, work on the you know the foundations of what they have so there's only 11 extras like we're going to rate each individual guy in the top 20 and feature them one by one but from 21 to 31 uh you know you're already well down the down the pecking order of a relatively short list and most of those guys are very much the in the system types that were picked in the fifth sixth seventh round in europe they're in college they don't have a call uh, you know a contract in the foreseeable future, but the orders have their rights for three or four or even more years for the college guys or indefinitely for that one Russian guy that they just drafted, Yevseyev. And so they're all what my friend Low Tide calls a distant bell. You know, they're out there, you can hear them off in the distance, but, you know, it's a long way away before they're going to become a factor. And really of that entire list, uh, it was only numbers 21 and 22 
where uh, I thought there was, you know, there's there's some good information on these guys. Uh, in one case, trending poorly, in the other case, trending well. Uh, trending poorly being Olivier Rodrigue, who was by far the highest draft pedigree guy on these 11 players. Most of them are fifth round or below. He was a second round pick. The Oilers traded up. They traded two draft picks to get the one that became Olivier Rodrigue. And anytime they do that, I kind of focus on that player and say, let's see if the scouts had it right. Because I obviously really wanted him if they're going to trade two draft picks to get the guy. So let's see how, uh, how, how, uh, whether they nailed that one. And Rodrigue really has just been treading water two years as a pro. He's entering the last year of his entry-level contract now. And he has uh, a lot to prove to uh, to get another contract offer. And, I mean, it may be that, uh, you know, they 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 offer him and they keep him for a fourth year. But so far, he's played two years. One year, he's split between uh, the Austrian League and uh, the AHL. And he played, I think, 11 games in the AHL, and he had an eight. 94 save percentage and then last year he split between the ECHL and the AHL and he played 13 games in the AHL with 886 save percentage and you know that's just not good enough uh, in the ECHL he was a little better at least by save percentage I think 907 but I mean that's not exactly tearing the cover off the ball in double A either and then he spent last year some time on the taxi squad in Edmonton because they had to have a third sort of what they call an e-bug, a backup goalie during uh, up until the All-Star break. Remember, they had to have a uh, they had a taxi squad and they had to have at least one goalie available. And rather than have their best goalie sitting around gathering cobwebs on the taxi squad, they kind of took their th- their fifth goalie. They left their three and four playing in uh, Bakersfield, which was Stuart Skinner uh, by then and Ilya Konovalov. Uh, since gone back to Russia, and the fifth goalie was uh, Rodrigue, so he was the one who got the NHL job, but really zero playing time, and you know just hanging around with the Black Aces, and so he. Let's just say that a lot of this isn't his fault, the way things have happened the last two years. But uh, what what hasn't happened is he has never really gotten a string going where he played a bunch of games and he had a few good games. I mean, last year he had one game in the AHL where he held an opponent below two goals. You know, like you're not going to be opening a lot of eyes with, uh, you know, sort of middle-of-the-road performances. And honestly, that's what they've been getting from him. Yeah, so last year, you know, first they bring in Konovalov to challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got to give him a try. Because yep. he had had, yep. had a few pretty good years in the KHL. And now there's another guy, Ryan Fanti, who's come in. Yes. And has moved ahead of him. So that's got to be discouraging for Rodrigue, like to see Fanti come in there as a free agent from U.S. college hockey. And he's clearly, you know, ahead of him, I think. Well, probably ahead on the depth chart. So, And Calvin Pickard, who's you know, going to be the fair enough, sort of starting goalie at the AHL level. Yeah. So it could be that Rodrigue is still sort of locked into that organizational number five position, which... Uh, sort of defaults to being the starting goalie in the ECHL. Well, that's what you expect as a first-year pro. Well, your third-year pro, you'd like to think you'd be a little further ahead than that. So, And then the other guy, and this is the guy that's more on the up arrow, to me at least, is Max Wanner, Maximus Wanner. What a great name. 
And, and he plays for Moose Jaw Warriors of the WHL. He's a right shot defenseman. And he moved up our ranks to number 21. So he's just outside the top 20. And I know he moved up my personal ranks uh, uh, due to uh, the season that he had in Moose Jaw, where he consistently got better as the season went along. And he went from, he was originally uh, tagged, Dover Prospects tagged him in October as being, you know, a good stay-at-home defenseman, but there's no sign of any offense. But as the season came along, he showed more and more signs of uh, of offense. He had 10 points in 33 games uh, as of end of 2021. And then he had uh, 13 points in 22 games, and he got hurt uh, in the 2022 20, portion of the season. So he basically doubled his points per game rate. And then he got seven points in nine playoff games. So again, he was sort of raising the boat. And this is, I mean, it's hard to rate a defenseman based on boxcar stats, any defenseman. Uh, but the fact is that he was getting more and more productive. It also is highly suggestive he was getting more playing time and taking on a bigger role uh, with the team. Uh, he had he played he, he was okay in training camp last year. He looked pretty good. I thought uh, this year at the Billy Morris Cup, which was all of the Dev Camp that I got to see. And uh, you know he's he's right-handed shot defenseman. He's six three. Uh, he's still, you know, 180 pounds or something, but you know he's going to fill out into something more than that. He's uh, pretty good on the one-on-one defense, like just, you know, winning, stopping the guy outright, and uh, fairly mobile, and, and, you know, just some nice raw skills there, and and, uh, he's a project, but uh, he's a guy that you could see with one more year of junior and then, you know, a good steady run in the AHL that could turn into a player in three or four years. Yeah, Luca Munzenberger is playing for Team Germany at the uh, World Juniors. I, now, did he get hurt? I understand he was not in Germany's lineup. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, I no. thought he might have. Okay, sorry. But it wouldn't surprise me, given what how the World Juniors has been just absolutely devastating on Oilers' pro- prospects. All of all of uh, of uh, Philip Robery. Dylan Holloway and Xavier Borgo all got hurt, I think, in the first game of their World Juniors in Edmonton over the last two years. And oh, here, yeah. here we go. Uh, news update from the IA, IIHF website. With Captain Luca Munzenberg returning to the lineup after missing the opening 5-1 mm-hmm. loss to the USA. So he he's back in the lineup, so that's good news. Well, uh, Oilers and... Good health throughout the World Junior seems to be a non-starter. So anyway, I'm glad he's ready to go. I like Maximus's name as well. It's like a, an all-time hockey name, and uh, of course, a, a name made famous in the movie Gladiator, where like it uh-huh. all resonate. That name resonates with us because of uh, the character played by uh, uh, Russell Crowe. Um, right. Anyway, um, I'm going to be writing about Jake Chason, who is a big strapping, well, he's 6'1", 180, um, 19 years old. Uh, he's got another year in the WHA, WHL mm-hmm. coming with Brandon. He, he So he's had two pretty tough years, Bruce, yes. um, He's he, where he's played 23 games one year. That, and that's mainly, I think, d- due to COVID, cutting yes. the season almost to nothing. And then last year, 20 games, which was really must be frustrating for him. He got injured and missed. He didn't play till March. And and his, 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 camp. 
Yeah, is, is that right? Is, is yeah. Was that the injury that put him out? He got, yeah, he got hurt here, and he was on Oilers IR for a while, and then they shipped him back, and he didn't actually play a regular season game or any game uh, until uh, March, early March. So he, and then he, he was good. He got uh, 20 points in 23 games in his draft year when he was taken in the fourth round, 116th overall by the Oilers. Mm-hmm. And then this past year, he got 18 points in 20 games. So there was no really, like, you know, players are always, you're always hoping to see a big spike up in the year after draft. He didn't get that probably because in, in because he got hurt. So uh, we'll have to see, you know, I'm going to be writing about him and digging in a little deeper into him, into his results. So that's the next up for me. Bruce, we should just give a word for the passing of Ben Stelter. Mm-hmm. Just such a sad moment uh, for everybody in the city. And... Um, it's it's funny, like it just everyone knows knows of him now, mm-hmm. and everyone was so moved by what happened with him becoming the, uh, you know, the talisman for the team, the mascot of the team. That's a good and, talisman. And yeah, it it was like that, and mm-hmm. um, sad to see. Much better than mascot. Yeah, <laughs> much better than mascot. The he he. Uh, you know, whatever you want to say. He just became mm-hmm. beloved with Oilers fans. And um, just tough to see a little guy go through that and pass away. Yeah, well, he won a lot of hearts in the city, and I would say around the hockey world uh, over these past uh, many months, really. And uh, I thought he he was a, a positive force that kind of drew the community together and Goodness knows there's enough things that are dividing us these days, but uh, uh, I didn't find too many people out there that had something bad to say about young Ben Stelter. Uh, he was a, a, a very feisty little guy with lots of personality, and the team, to their credit, they embraced him. Uh, the organization, to its credit, uh, embraced the opportunity, did a massive fundraiser for the Kids with Cancer foundation they did the whole i think it was the whole first round of the playoff seven game series 50 50 proceeds and they were they were immense uh so he left his mark in that way but i think he left his mark in a more personal way i know i went to the last game uh against colorado in the regular season where waters finally clinched the playoff berth and they beat uh, colorado and at the end of the game they played la bamba and they zeroed in on on Ben on the big screen and the crowd just roared it was phenomenal and it was something that sort of in person sends a thrill down your back that when you're watching on TV you don't quite get how much of the noise is canned versus real well this was real and the place went nuts and just wonderful to see so the flip side is very sad to see you know the news as it came down even by the end of the playoffs I was saying to my wife and and she she actually knows someone in uh, Ben's family, so she's kept me like this was his illness was known since you know well before he came into the public eye, and and at that point it seemed pretty clear that uh, that uh, uh, his condition was worsening and we feared the worst and now that has in fact transpired and our hearts go out to the Stelter family. Yeah. They sure do. He lived his life bravely. Yes, yeah, and he was a feisty, uh, feisty little guy. There was a great story by someone they read on the radio the other day. Someone who, 
who also knew the family, talking about uh, uh, the dad, Mike, building a set of stairs to the basement in this Delta residence and sort of building the stairs first. And before he put the railing in, Ben was trying to go down the stairs and he said something like, what sort of doofus wouldn't build rails? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he had that little, I mean, remember what he did to the Keith Kachuk? Uh not quite a doll, but it was a, a anyway, he, uh, uh, not Keith, the map. Matt Kuchuk, Kuchuk, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now you're uh, any, anyway, he, players from he, different eras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had, he had some edge to him, but, uh, he was a, a very lovable figure. And, uh, that's, uh, not the first time this has happened to Edmonton in the last short while. I mean, it's not that long ago that we lost Joey Moss and, and, uh, his influence continues to linger in this town and will for a long time. And I suspect that Ben Stelters will do likewise. Indeed. Bruce, we will leave it there. So um, we'll be back, I guess, talking about some of the other prospects as this proceeds. Mm. And uh, thanks Maybe for talking today. <laughs> Maybe a sign. We'll see. Yeah. Thanks for thanks talking. For, thanks for listening, everyone. Indeed. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.